The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord. Reading Matthew's Gospel, the 11th chapter. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence, and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name. Our sermon this morning begins outside a courtroom in Missouri this past Wednesday. A man whose name is Moore Irons, age 40, walked out of a Missouri prison a free man this week after spending 23 years behind bars. That all happened because of a very famous female basketball player whose name is Maya Moore. Sports Illustrated did a story on Maya Moore not too long ago and called her the greatest player of women's basketball ever. She won the NCAA championship. She won the pro championship time after time after time. She left all of that because this man's case bothered her so much she was determined to get him out because there was such a miscarriage of justice. He was sentenced to 50 years in prison for burglary and assault with a gun, and after 23 years behind bars because of Moore's effort, which publicly backed him and funded the entire thing, after 23 years, a scene of tearful celebration this past week outside the front doors of Jefferson City Correctional Center happened, and Moore and her family at long last greeted the man they'd come to consider, and I quote from the New York Times article, one of their own. It is a powerful thing to be freed from a miscarriage of justice. And can we all agree as we begin this morning that being sentenced to 50 years for something you didn't do and spending 23 years of that sentence behind bars and finally getting out is a feeling of liberation that most of us can scarcely imagine. It's an interesting image, being accused of something. It's an interesting thought, getting free. And it's very powerful if you are free and you are innocent. But this morning, what I want us to think about is, what if you're free and unlike him, you're actually guilty? And what if you've been in there for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years for something you actually did do, and the governor, as is his prerogative in numerous instances, he or she can grant you clemency, and you can walk free. How does it feel to be liberated from something that you didn't do? Awesome. 
How does it feel to be liberated from somebody else's action for something that you did do, for which you're definitely guilty, even better? Because it's pure grace. It's utterly free. Now, with that in mind, I want to turn to Romans 8, verse 1, for just a few moments this morning, and I want to consider one of the greatest verses in the Christian gospel. The whole New Testament, this is one of the biggies. It should leap off the page. There is, therefore, says St. Paul, after laboring for seven chapters, no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict, please look at your text and note carefully, is not some condemnation, most condemnation, a little condemnation, less condemnation. No, no condemnation. The status of the people in question is not simply improved, it is completely transformed, changed utterly in status. Now, in order to understand this, our minds need to go in two directions with St. Paul for just a second, because when he says, therefore, you always, mom, God rest her memory, was an English teacher, whenever you see a therefore, always ask what it's there for, right? He's making an argument. So this whole argument is, first of all, left to ourselves in our own performance under the law, we are utterly condemned. So we've got to take a moment and realize the argument of the earlier part of Romans. And the idea is you are facing a court in which God is presiding, and the accusation is very simple. Has this person from Christ St. Paul's on Young's Island loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as they, their self, every single day, all the days of their life? In order to make this make sense, all you have to do is pick out a movie like Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks, for those of you who've seen it, to realize how utterly indicting this is. It's a, it's a pretty humorous movie. I recommend it. Meryl Streep is a co-star. It's a 1991 movie. He seems like a fairly ordinary guy in California. He gets hit by a bus, and he goes to the next life, and he meets Rip Torn, who he finds out is his attorney. And the poor guy has, has a terrible problem, which is in the next life, he actually has to defend what he's done in this life. And he ends up in a, in, a, in a courtroom where the TV camera shows actual scenes from his previous life of things that he actually did. And all I can think of when I think of the movie is that wonderful cartoon. I have a friend that sends me New Yorker cartoons, which are, can be incredibly funny. And I, he, one of my favorites of the last couple of years is it's, it's actually the judgment of God, the bar, and the, and the guy standing there pleading his innocence. And, and the caption is, those weren't lies. That was spin! <laughs> and everybody knows the problem for Albert Brooks is there's some things that flash onto that screen that he'd really like to undo that he can't undo. And what Paul makes clear in the first part of Romans is we are so absolutely, completely, and totally guilty, get this please, that in Romans 3 he says, and I quote, every mouth is stopped. I want you to think about that for a second. That image from a courtroom is this image. It is, Kendall is in the dock. God is asking, has he loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself? And the evidence that the prosecution brings is so overwhelming, so utterly unambiguous, and so complete and so total, that
very mouth has stopped, including mine. I have nothing to say in my own defense. That is the situation of the person left to themselves outside of Christ that Paul has labored to get us to understand. There is condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus because they're stuck performing God's standards according to God's expectations, and nobody can do that. All have sinned, Paul says in Romans 3, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So point number one is, we all stand left to ourselves under the law, totally condemned. Point number two is, and Paul makes it very clear in the passage that was just read to you, that Christ Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves and what the law could not do. He stood in our place. He's taken the judgment that we deserved. And so God's justice is satisfied because of what Jesus did. The late great pastor of um, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Donald Gray Barnhouse, tells the story of when he was 15 years old and he heard a man give a testimony for Christ. And as a young person, he was not clear where he stood with Christ. And he was listening to this man very intently. And he was not settled in his own mind as to where he sat with God. And he knew that this guy, the way that he talked as a teenager, had something that he didn't have. So he goes up to him afterwards and he has a conversation and he asks him a question. How can, I, how can I have what you have? How can I have your confidence? You seem to live as if you are utterly confident that you can stand before God. And the man did something that Barnhouse wrote about later and used as an illustration the rest of his life. He took out my left hand, says Barnhouse, and he drew it out, palm upward, all the while fixing his eyes on me with an intense gaze. This hand, he said, represents you. On that hand, he placed a large hymn book. He then said, this book represents your sin. The weight of it is upon you. God hates sin, and his wrath must bear down against sin. His wrath is bearing down upon you, and you have no peace in your heart and in your life. Then he drew my other hand forward, palm upward, and said, this hand represents the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. There is no sin upon him, and the Father must love him because he is without spot or blemish. He is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. I saw my two hands before me, one covered with a large book and the other empty. I realized I had the sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ had none. Then this man put his hand under my left hand, the hand that represented me, and took it and moved it over to the hand on which was empty, and he put the book over there with a sweeping gesture, and he turned my hand over so that the book came down on the palm of my right hand, the one that represented Christ. My left hand he put back as it had been. I could see that the burden was gone from it entirely. He then said to me this, this is what happened when the Lord Jesus Christ took your place upon the cross. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. This is justification. This puts our sins on him and takes them away from us by placing them upon the Savior. Which means what? It means when God sees us, he doesn't see us, but he sees Jesus. And if you are in Jesus, you will never be condemned. Never, ever, ever. Another great minister of Moody Bible Church, H.A. Ironside, speaking about this passage, says this. He says, What unspeakable relief is it to the bewildered, troubled soul, oppressed with a sense of his own unworthiness, distressed because of his frequent failures to live up 
even to his own highest resolves when he learns that God sees him in Christ Jesus and thus seeing he is free from all condemnation. Now listen to what he says. This is important. The problem with a passage like this is it's not just theologically true. It has to be integrated with your life. And so he goes on, Ironsides, and he says, the person says, but I feel condemned. Right? What about that? This, however, says Ironsides, is not the question. It's not how you feel or I feel. It's what God says. He sees us in Christ risen forever beyond the reach of condemnation. A prisoner before the bar, hard of hearing and dull of sight, might imagine that the judge was prescribing his doom when in fact the judge was giving a verdict of full acquittal. Neither his blindness nor his deafness would alter the fact that the judge had issued the verdict the judge had issued. And although we are often slow to hear and our spiritual vision is most defective, the blessed fact remains that God has pronounced the believer free from condemnation wherever he fully rises to this glorious fact. And whether we rise to it or we shrink from it is the passage question at hand. It's a very simple two-point sermon. Left to ourselves, we are condemned, we are utterly lost, every mouth is stopped. In Christ Jesus, we are completely freed, not somewhat freed, not mostly freed, not a little freed, completely, utterly freed, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. God sees us as he sees his own son. And that freedom is true today, and it will be true in the future forever. We take it with us as his children into eternity. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I just want to apply these two points and then I'm done. I wonder if you know that Satan has a full-time job. It's hiding in the book of Revelation, which nobody wants to touch with a 10-foot pole because it's there at the back of the New Testament. And it's scary, and it's got all these visions and stuff. But if you look at chapter 12 in the middle, it actually talks about uh, Satan as a fallen angel, and it says something about Satan that's vitally important. It says his job, and I quote, is to be the accuser of the brethren. And this is what it says in Revelation 12, verse 10. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to take, the, take this down. He accuses them day and night before God. Guess what Satan's full-time job is? It's to get you to make sure that you understand that you're worthless and condemned. Because if you're worthless and condemned and you haven't got anything to offer other people or to God, you can't do anything for the kingdom. And the reality is, left to ourselves, we are condemned. And Satan will continuously bring up, just like that lawyer in Defending Your Life, the worst scenes from our lives to remind us Right? That the, makes me think of the married couple who, who are in conflict and they say to the minister, you know, we really need help. And the wife says, uh, I don't see the problem. And the husband says, whenever we get into a fight, my wife always gets historical. And the minister says, no, you don't mean historical, you mean hysterical. And, and he says, no, she gets historical. She brings up all the stuff I previously did wrong. There's always evidence. There's always enough evidence in any relationship to blow it up when you've got two sinners involved. And Satan's full-time job is to make sure that we're worthless and we feel utterly worthless because then we have nothing to offer. And Paul says to us, and he wants us to internalize it deeply this morning, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Peace with God 
is Christ in glory. I can say it no better than 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. Listen. For so we are. This week, brothers and sisters, I want you to get up every morning and I want you to say one thing to yourself. You do realize, as a Christian, one of the things you need to learn to do is to preach to yourself. It's actually better to preach to yourself than to talk to yourself, by the way, just as we're going in passing. I want you to get up and I want you to simply look at the cross in your mind's eye, in your imagination, however you prefer to get in touch with the the cross and say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. There is therefore now no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. I am a child of the King. That's what God says. When God sees me, he sees Jesus. And so I'm free. And I'm a free child of God. That is the deepest truth about you when you get out of bed in the morning. Deeper than the fact that you're physically alive is that you're spiritually alive and you're spiritually free and you will be free forever. Christ Jesus came into the world, says the prayer book, to save sinners. To save sinners. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. Good news of the gospel. Good news for Christians. And St. Paul wants us to hear it afresh. In Jesus' name.